you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus 17. That'll be our sermon text for this morning. Before we read, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you uh, that your word is truth. And uh, we thank you, Father, that you speak to us uh, through the scriptures, by the scriptures. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Uh, We know that apart from your spirit, our hearts are closed, our minds are dull. We can't understand or believe or receive the truth. So we pray that you would pour out your spirit on us now. We pray that you would uh, be with me as I speak, that I would speak truth, and anything that I say that is not from you would be forgotten, uh, but that your truth would sink deeply into our hearts and would challenge us and transform us and draw us closer to you. pray that you would be glorified in this moment. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Leviticus 16. Beginning with verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord." So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. And you shall say to them, any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people." If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood." Any one also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten, shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And every person who eats what dies of itself or what is torn by beasts, whether he is a native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, 
he shall bear his iniquity. What makes you feel happy? What, what makes you feel safe? What makes you feel like you're worth something? That you're valuable? What gives you a sense of meaning or purpose or significance or belonging? Where do you turn for freedom or dignity or honor or health or hope? In short, where do you turn for life? Our our passage this morning challenges us as to where we seek life. And the outline that uh, is in your bulletin, it's on the back, is really just one statement in three parts. That is that we are to seek life in the Father through the Son who shed his blood for us. Seek life in the Father through the Son who shed his blood for us. First, we're to, to seek life in the Father. You know, if we're honest with ourselves, we look many different places for life. We look to food and drink for pleasure. We look to relationships for a sense of security. We look to uh, PhDs and degrees for status. We look to material possessions for a sense of self-worth. The Bible would call this looking to idolatry. Whenever we look to something to give us what only God can give, that, that is worshiping an idol. Whenever we look to something to give us what only the Father should be giving us, health or security or meaning or purpose or acceptance or identity or joy or hope or significance or fulfillment, we are worshiping an idol. Now, it's not that you shouldn't take medicine when you're sick or get a job to pay your bills or spend time with someone because you enjoy their company. It's not that those things are wrong, not at all. In fact, if we understand the Bible rightly, we understand that God uses means, that God uh, is at work through those things, but our problem is we often don't look beyond those things to the God who is at work. And so it's, it's not just religious people then who, who worship idols, right? By this definition, uh, anyone who is looking to some created thing for life and happiness is worshiping an idol. The businessman who thinks money will solve all his problems or the promiscuous college student who thinks she needs those relationships to have value or the addict who thinks that, that only this substance can take away the pain and enable him to cope with life. Or the scientist who is trying to find some higher meaning in the grand design of evolutionary progress rather than in God's purposes. Or the Christian who feels that having the right theology makes him a better person than those around him. Or the chronic spender who is searching for acceptance by buying off friends. See, we constantly look for life in the wrong places, yet seldom do we find it. It reminds me, actually, of an interview I, I heard uh, with the singer Adele. Uh, her son was about three years old at the time, and she said this. She said, I was always looking for the feeling that he gives me, and I was looking for it everywhere in the wrong places, having no idea that I would find it in having a child. I thought I'd have a kid in my 30s, to be honest, and I think everyone thought I was crazy for having a baby when I did, but I feel like he was my little angel, and he came down to save me, and he did. See, even something as good as motherhood can become an idol. 
The struggle was no different for Israel than it is for us. Uh, their, their idols may have looked different, but idols are idols after all. Now, idolatry is only briefly mentioned in our text. It's only one verse, really even half a verse. Verse 7. Leviticus 17, verse 7 says, So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. Apparently some of the Israelites were sacrificing their sacrifices to demons in the wilderness. Now, why were Israelites sacrificing to goat demons? What what were they looking to get? What did they want? In fact, Moses uh, said the Israelites hoard after these demonic powers. That speaks to their unfaithfulness to God. Maybe it also speaks to something they thought they would get from these demons. This is the nation that saw God bring them out of Egypt. They saw the plagues. They saw the Red Sea part. They saw water come from a rock. They daily, daily saw the manna come from heaven. But it had become rather dull, perhaps, or predictable, expected. This plague-inducing, Red Sea parting, water from the rock providing, manna sending God just wasn't enough. They wanted something else, something more, something that maybe the goat demons could provide. Their hearts had wandered. That's what it means to whore after something. It wouldn't be the last time Israel would be unfaithful, of course. right? God laments in the book of Jeremiah. We've heard it twice already this morning. But God laments, has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit They're chasing after the goat demons, the wrong things, the empty things. Be appalled, God says, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Two evils, God says, right? Two things going on here. They're forsaking God, right? The fountain of living waters, the source of life the source of health and peace. And they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, right? Counterfeit gods, broken cisterns that can hold no water, counterfeit gods that cannot give life. They're looking in the wrong place. They're looking to empty wells to quench their thirst. Counterfeit gods that cannot save and cannot satisfy. Why do we do that? Why do we chase after things that cannot satisfy? Well, in part, I think it's because we we believe the original lie, right? That original lie that God is holding out on us. There's something more to life that he's not giving. And it's because he doesn't love us, we think. If God is holding out on me, I'll just have to look elsewhere. We really think we can make ourselves happier by chasing after these things. But of course, the truth of the matter is God is not holding out on us. He gives us what we need when we need it. He disciplines those he loves. He's training us to come to him, the fountain of living waters. He's training us to drink from the source rather than the sewer water that we often chase after. The Father alone has life in himself. The Father alone gives life. He is the one who made all things. The psalmist says all the creatures of the earth look to God to give them their food in season. It seems like all the creatures of the earth look to God except for man. The psalmist says that God is the one who puts joy in our heart. 
that God's presence is the source of that joy. God is the one, the scriptures tell us, that sets the captives free, who frees us from slavery to our own desires. Belonging comes from God as we are adopted into his family. Glory comes from God as we are clothed in Christ. Even affirmation comes from God as we long to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. No matter how much modern medicine can prolong our life now, only God can give the resurrection life that is ours in Christ. And so Israel was to bring their sacrifices not, not to goat demons in the wilderness, but, but to the Lord, right? They were the, to offer their animals, verse 4, as a gift to the Lord. They were to bring their sacrifices, verse 5, to the Lord and sacrifice as, them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. They were to offer their burnt offerings and sacrifices, verse 9, to the Lord. See, we're to, we are to seek life from the Father. We are to seek communion with him, seek forgiveness from him, seek reconciliation to him, seek our daily provision from him. As Jesus said to pray, give us our daily bread, right? Everything we look to him to provide. Seek life in the Father, not not in goat demons, not in politics or PhDs or financial success or family or friends. We seek life in the Father. We seek life in the Father through the Son. Where do, you, where do you find God? Uh, our, our culture gives lots of different answers to that question, right? Uh, in fact, I, I read an article online entitled, How to Find God. And uh, don't read it. It's not, it's not worth it. Uh, uh, but it was filled with phrases like uh, forms of worship that you feel good about and participate in a local worship center if you choose and look at your local library for religious books, and then it listed five different religions' books. And uh, in short, their answer was, find God wherever you want. I mean, that, that was, wherever, wherever you feel good, that's, go find God there. Uh, another article encourages, if you want to find God, first thing you need to do is get rid of all thought of sin and separation, and second, believe that every thought you have of God is God. So pretty much whatever you think about God is true, except Christianity. <laughs> this, the author suggests, is outworn theology. See, in our, our culture, we don't want to restrict God to any one place, any one book, any one religion. And, of course, much of that is in reaction against Christianity, because, of course, that is exactly what Christianity does. You know, the majority of the first nine verses of our text aren't, aren't focused simply on to whom the to whom of the sacrifices, they're focused on the where. Isn't that interesting? The, the, did you notice that? Look, verses 3 and 4, 5, 8 and 9, verses 3 and 4 say, If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, Blood guilt shall be imputed to him. And then verse 5, this is to the end that uh, the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest, at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Verses 8 and 9, again, and, and you shall say to them, any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off. Notice this, this close connection in this chapter between seeking God and seeking God in a particular place. 
It's actually emphasized throughout the Old Testament, particularly the book of Deuteronomy. If you read the book of Deuteronomy, emphasized again and again is this idea that God is to be found at his appointed place, the place where he will cause his name to dwell. And this is not, as, as some might suggest, so that the religious and political leaders could maintain control, but it's, it is actually an important, it's making an important spiritual point. And as much as I love the, the, the so-called regulative principle of worship, that God is only to be worshipped how he dictates, um, that's actually not the main point of this either. Why does God only want Israel to sacrifice to him in one place? Well, here, here are a couple of reasons. Uh, the first is that God has chosen to meet Israel there. God promises repeatedly in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy to meet with Israel in his tabernacle. Before the ark, before the altar, at the entrance, right? So God is saying, look, I will meet you here. Meet me here. God is making a date, right? Here's where we're going to meet. Okay, fine, but why? Right? Why, 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 God? Why do you just want to meet with us here? Why just this one place? Why not everywhere? Why not in our homes? Why not in the woods? Why not at our workplaces? Why, why, why in one place? It seems a bit narrow, no? Uh, a bit black and white, people say. Well, here's reason too, right? God only wants Israel to sacrifice to him in one place, partly to protect them from idolatry, right? That's, that's what it says. Uh, if God knows that he is the ultimate source of safety and satisfaction, then it's loving for God to desire his people to come to him to find that safety and satisfaction. You know, if we're in a room with, with two doors and I know behind one is a flesh-eating monster and behind the other is paradise, right? Well, it would, loving, it would be loving for me not only to desire for you to choose the one and avoid the other, but also to try to convince you of its desirability. Verse 7 says, These laws about coming to the temple to worship are so that they would no more sacrifice to goat demons, goat demons which cannot save, cannot satisfy, cannot give life. So by saying, come here, God is trying to protect his people and show them the path of life. So by calling the people to sacrifice only at the temple, God is seeking to protect them from dissatisfaction and death found elsewhere. But third, God God meets with his people in one place and calls them to seek him in one place. Maybe this is kind of the most important because that place, the temple, is a picture of something else. The tabernacle or the temple is really just, it's one instance of a larger pattern that culminates in Christ. This is not a unique phenomenon in, in the history of God's relationship to his people. Think about it. God created the whole world and then he planted a garden. He placed Adam and Eve in that garden so that he might meet with them there. Abraham even had a few places in Canaan where he built an altar, and he would come back to those places again and again if you read through Genesis, because there God had met with him. Uh, God met with Moses and, and the Israelites uniquely on Mount Sinai. The great tragedy of the exile is uh, the destruction of the temple, that, that God was no longer dwelling in the midst of his people. The book of Revelation, of course, pictures a day when God's people will dwell with God in the new Jerusalem. He will dwell with us. Though that same book says that it talks about outside, right? God's dwelling with his people, but then there's an outside, even still, right? There's another place 
where God is not. It says outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. See, those who meet with God are in this particular place, the new Jerusalem. But those who are not in that place are not not meeting with God, at least not with his mercy and not with his love. One of the most important places, though, to turn to, to to think about this concept of meeting with God in one particular place and and why that is the case is actually the Gospel of John. There's all this language about a tabernacle and a temple in the Old Testament. And then then Jesus comes along and John says that when the eternal Son of God took on flesh, he tabernacled among us. And then Jesus begins to refer to his body as the temple. And then we have this much, I think, misinterpreted passage in John chapter 4, where Jesus is having this discussion with the Samaritan woman, and they're talking at one point about worship. And the Samaritan woman asks, which mountain are we supposed to worship on? Where are we supposed to meet with God? This mountain or in Jerusalem? And Jesus says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And people often take that to mean we no longer worship God in a particular place, but we worship him internally in spirit and with right doctrine in truth. But that's actually just not what Jesus means. (laughs) Um, The phrase spirit and truth here is referring to the Holy Spirit and to Jesus himself. Now, why would it be referring to Jesus? Why does does he use the word truth here to refer to himself? Well, bear with me for just a second, and I'll show you. Um, If you read through the Gospel of John, truth is a unique characteristic of Jesus. John 1.14, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.17, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus' truth is in contrast with Moses. That's interesting. Clearly, it's not because Moses is a liar, right? But the law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. Similarly, Jesus is true in the Gospel of John. John 1, 9. Jesus is the true light, which gives light to everyone. Again, in contrast to Moses, Jesus says in John 6, 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. What is the true bread? Jesus says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Again, in contrast to Israel, Jesus says in John 15, I am the true vine. What does all this language of truth and true mean? Well, think about the the John 6 passage about the bread. Did God send bread from heaven to Israel? Yes. Was the bread a lie? No, it was was real bread, right? They ate it. They they lived, it sustained them for 40 years in the wilderness. What does it mean then that in contrast, Jesus is the true bread? Well, that bread in the wilderness was simply a shadow of the reality who is Jesus. It's a foretaste and a picture of the one to come. But Jesus is the reality. He's the true bread. 
He is the real. When Jesus says, no longer will you worship the Father on this mountain or that mountain, but true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, he is saying that the shadow is no more and the reality has come. We're done with the appetizer. We've moved on to the main course. Jesus is the true temple. If we want to draw near to the Father, we, we don't do it in a building, but we do still do it in a, in a place of sorts. It's just that that place is a person. Jesus is now the place where God has caused his name to dwell. Jesus is the true temple. And so Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we come to the Father through Jesus the Son. There are not many ways to God. There is only one, and his name is Jesus. He is the fulfillment of all the pictures. He's the reality behind all the shadows. He is the fullness of all the foretastes. If you want to draw near to God, you must do it in the place that he has appointed, and that is through his Son. Now, I might also mention that Christ has now taken up residence in his church so that we are the temple of the Spirit, which is maybe a little intimidating, right? Because that means God is meant to be found in us. Uh, not simply us individually, though that is true, but the temple language in the New Testament is, is almost always corporate. It's where two or three are gathered that Jesus is in our midst. So when people come into our midst, right, they, they, are, they are to meet with the Father. What does that mean? What does that look like? How do we show the Father's presence in us? What does that mean or should that mean or can that mean? That people meet God when they come into our midst. Well, we might continue to ask still, why? I mean, seek God in the Father because he's the fountain of life. Okay, got it. Whether you agree with that or don't agree, you can at least appreciate that this is what Christianity teaches. Life comes from God. But why does God limit access to himself? I mean, I get that, okay, the exclusivity of the tabernacle points to the exclusivity of Jesus, but why the exclusivity of Jesus? Why does God narrow it down in that way? Well, this brings us to our third point, right? We seek life in the Father through the Son who shed his blood for us. And it brings us really to the second half of this chapter. You know, there's a certain distorted view of God that is shared often by moral people and immoral people alike. And I've had people tell me, people our culture considers immoral people, I've had people tell me that they were not good enough to go to church. Have you ever heard that before? Has somebody ever told that to you? I'm not good enough to go to church. I don't belong there. And you see, their thought process is this. Uh, the people who can approach God are the good people. The people whom God accepts are the good people, and I'm not one of those good people. You see, moral people often believe the same thing, right? They believe that uh, they don't really need the church or Christianity or Jesus because they are really good people. And uh, you see, their thought process is the people who can approach God are the good people, and the people whom God accepts are the good people, and I am one of those good people, so God should accept me no matter what I do. Impartial truths are always dangerous, aren't they? Um, the, the moral person sees part of the truth. Uh, Psalm 24 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. The... the the moral person gets that. God accepts the righteous, the pure, the clean. All right? 
The immoral person gets often uh, gets a, a little bit more, right? He knows a bit of his own heart. He knows at least for himself that no one does good, no, not one. But neither one has the whole truth because neither the moral person nor the immoral person uh, sees everything. This partial truth that God accepts the righteous, it's actually one of those partial truths that keeps more people away from God than anything else. It keeps immoral people away because they say, I'm not good enough for God. And it keeps moral people away because they say, I'm good enough for God, I don't need Christianity. And it misses, of course, completely the main point of the second half of our passage. Leviticus 17, 10 through 16 tells us not to eat blood. I know you're wondering, uh, what does that have to do with what we've been talking about? Uh, But bear with me. Verse 10 in Leviticus 17 tells us not to eat blood. Verse 12 tells us not to eat blood. Verse 13 tells us if we're hunting, we're not to eat the blood. We're to pour it out on the ground and cover it up. Verse 15 tells us if we find a dead animal and eat it, we are made unclean because there's bound to be blood in it because it wasn't properly slaughtered and drained. The whole point of these verses is how Israel is to go about their day given the fact that they are not to eat the blood. The question is, why are they not to eat the blood? Well, verse 11, thankfully, tells us. Verse 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. There there are a couple things to notice here in this verse. Uh, The first is, right, the life of the flesh is in the blood. The blood represents the life of the animal. Actually, it really, it's more than just representing the life of the animal, isn't it? Because if you take someone's blood, you are literally taking their life. Um, It's in this way of seeing things that the blood is the life in the sacrificial system. The blood of the animal is its life. Once you drain out the blood, you are draining out that animal's life. Uh, And so God, in in one sense, is engendering a, a kind of respect of the life that he has given He's allowing Israelites to slaughter these animals, even to eat these animals, but not eating the blood is a way of honoring the life of that animal, a life which belonged to God. But the blood is really given for a specific purpose, isn't it? God says, I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. Now, the Hebrew word atonement uh, can actually have a variety of possible meanings. One of the best here, I think, is that of ransom. Right? The verse is saying, God has given the blood on the altar as a ransom for our souls. It is the blood that acts as a ransom by the life. And the idea is a life for a life. What the immoral person often believes is right, right? I'm not good enough to enter God's presence. My life is forfeit because of my sin, uh, because of human rebellion. I have no right to approach the good and perfect and righteous creator of the universe. You know, when I first became a Christian, I understood, uh, understanding this was the easy part, right? I, I knew I was sinful, right? Just look at my life. I, I knew I didn't live the way I should. That was, that was a no-brainer. And deep down, I think we all have a, a sense of our own guilt, a sense of shame that recognizes I have done wrong. More fundamentally, maybe even there is something wrong with me. And if there is any punishment coming deep down, I know I deserve it. But God says he gave the blood to be a ransom, a life for a life. That's why Israel could only approach God through the temple, because that is where the sacrifices happen. This is why we can now only approach God through Christ, because he is our sacrifice. 
He shed his blood as a ransom for our sin. That is why he is the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him, through the sacrifice for sin. Because no one can come to the Father except their sins be taken away through a substitute. We, we often think about this in, in terms of uh, simple uh, categories of justice, right? Crimes require punishment. Justice requires the righting of wrongs. And, and that's, of course, a, a leg- legitimate way of thinking of things. God, because he is just, cannot let injustice stand. Rather, he will one day right all wrongs, but that includes punishing the wrongdoers. Hence, taking the life of the substitute in the place of the life of the worshiper. The one takes the place of the other, the life for the life, so that justice is satisfied. But it's more than that, because the last verse of our chapter talks about being cleansed from uncleanness. If someone eats food that dies of itself or was killed by a wild animal, that person must, according to verse 15, wash their clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening, then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. You know, whatever the... Uh, intricacies of the Old Testament ceremonial system, Jesus says it's our hearts that make us unclean and that no unclean thing can stand before the Father. So what Jesus does is he cleanses us by his blood to make us fit for the Father's presence. Jesus shed his blood as a ransom to redeem us and cleanse us that we might stand before the Father. Seek life where it may be found. Seek life in the Father through Jesus, his Son, who shed his blood as a ransom for our sin. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would help us to look to you. We are so prone to look around us and and eyes wide open, grab hold of whatever we see and think that maybe this will give us the thing that we're looking for, the high that we're looking for, the life that we're looking for. Father, help us to keep our eyes focused on you and know that life can be found only uh, in you, our Father, through your Son, Jesus, because of his sacrifice for our sin. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.